Well, it's a joy to be back here. I was going to say pleasure, but it's deep delight. This is a magical place, and uh, since since this is Valpurgis Nacht, I'm going to read something. It's not my own writing, and it's not poetry, although as far as I'm concerned, it's gorgeous poetry. Any A.S. Byatt fans in the audience? Because I'll raise my hand. <laughs> okay, they're all on this side. Uh, this is from her new novel called Ragnarok, The End of the Gods. And in, there are parallel stories of a thin girl, that's all she's ever called, the thin child, who's living in the countryside in England during World War II. And then the story of the Norse gods, which the child discovers, and by it is retelling. And of course, there are parallels with our world today. This is a passage from it. The iron wood was outside the walls of Asgard, outside the meadow of Midgard, a dark place, a devilish place, inhabited by things that were part beast and part human and even part god or part demon. The old one in the poem is Angerboda, Angerbotha, bringer of anguish, a giant with a fierce face, a pelt of wolf hair, clawed hands and feet, and sharp teeth. Loki, and he's the trickster god, played with her, rippling like flame over and in her body, pleasuring her against her will, clutching and clasping and escaping, invading and ungraspable. They spoke to each other in snarls and hissings. Sigyn, Loki's wife, would not have known this ferocious Loki or recognized his triumphant howl as his seed went in. Did he foresee the shapes of his children? One was a wolf cub, armed already with an array of sharp teeth and a dark throat behind them. One was a supple snake, with a crown of fleshy feelers and teeth sharp as her brother's, though fine as needles. She was dull gold, with blood red flickering over her scales as she stretched and coiled. The third was a woman, or a giantess, or a goddess. She was a strange color, or colors, her form was uncompromising, straight-spined, with long legs, strong, capable hands, firm feet. Her face was, there was no other way of putting it, severe. She had carved cheeks and a wide, unsmiling mouth. Inside, which were strong, sharp teeth, wolfish teeth, teeth for ripping. 
Her nose was fine and her brows were dusky, like smoke, like the lower world's kenning for forest, seaweed of the hills. Her eye sockets went back and back. Inside their caverns were unblinking dark, dark eyes, like pools of tar or wells where no light was reflected. But the color, half of her was black and half of her was blue. Half of her, those who saw her also reported, was living flesh and half was dead. Sometimes the line between the black and the blue split her cleanly, running from the crown of her black head, down the long nose, the chin, the breastbone, the sex, to the space between the feet. But sometimes the black and the blue floated on and in each other. They were beautiful, like the last blue of the sky meeting the dark of the coming night. They were hideous, the color of bruises on battered or moribund flesh. She slept naked, coiled and curled with her terrible kin, scales, fur, snout, fangs, lids over glaring eyes. They emitted a raucous hissing and purring. They delighted Loki. He fed them and watched them grow. Who knew? what they might do, they grew, and they grew. After I decided I would read this passage, I suddenly realized that probably on an unconscious level, uh, I had sensed a connection between this and its concerns with war and the end of the world, and some poems that I'm going to be reading tonight from a larger group called War Songs. But before getting to that, I'll read you a very different kind of poem. The poems that I'm reading tonight, they're all newer than the books. So they've either been published or they're so new that they're forthcoming here or there. And this one is called Ritual. As one who casts the word bread upon the word waters, testing, as one who not believing something will rise up from those waters, but not disbelieving either, casts out her voice. As one curious or hungry or filled with longing breaks off just the crust of a word, throwing the way she threw as a girl when everyone told her that was not the way to throw and expecting little or nothing looks into the blackness. But the waves are not black. They will be deep, scummed violet and bronze like a memorial forgotten. Would it have made a difference if she had cast the word thread upon those waters? 
unspooling what she spoke, sewing knots and tangles into waves, and might thread return to her as dread or even dead. As one who does not know what it is she wants, but wants her wanting sanctified and anointed with myrrh and futility, black, the waves are black and laced with white shrouds which pass into nothingness, and the way a snowflake vanishes into the waves, her voice cast out from her. She has wanted so long, such a lifetime, not knowing what it is she wants, as one who has eaten joy for no good reason, with no idea where it came from, and wept in her sleep, forgetting afterward who embraced her, but the next day feeling the loss as one who casts word after word into nothingness, fillets, ruins of foam cresting, so the word lover vanishes into water, and with it go fervor and savior forever and elixir, as one who keeps opening and closing, so the word birth is buried in earth, so the word breath is lost in death, as one who waits to see the eyes of water roll back into depth, who waits to see the depth rolled back and parted so she can fly through and thinks she sees wings and knows herself deluded, even though she sees as one who marked off her wanting, who staked its boundaries and let nothing cross over to staunch or squander it, as one who says, I want, therefore I am, as one who saw the word bread float in the word water before they both sank under the weight of her wanting as one who thought she saw something leap, but it may have been the word motion coming back to her, shadow for shadow. What is the hunger to know the other's hunger built up like an altar? Sacrifice, she understood the blood of hunger, wanting hunger for hunger, its teeth in her flesh, the word flesh, the word hunger, as one who the more she looked saw less, what little there was she messed into more mess, there was no depiction in it. What would it take? to register the quickness, the alacrity, to blow out the candle of the waves, the word candle, the voice of the waves, the word voice, the living face of the promise of the voice. The next poem is called Forget Forgetting. 
Ready or not, here's something a child used to do in the dark. Eyelids pressed down with its own fingers. The child sealing itself off like a tomb. But not to sleep. To pop open in the dark. To swivel in room, rooms of throb and shine. The roar of so much light deafening through stereos amplified. To cut glass and prism the decibels, the child whizzing up perfumes, stretching too far, blowing out its tires. There is no stopping it. It would come over the way sex comes over me now. There is always further. There is always deeper. The seedlings sent forth on waves, the walls collapsing, edges aglow, darkness flicking ashes against your sleep, the roots of trees overhanging, my body lowering into yours all its buckets, its expectations of drink and thirst, as if the water had to be made each time, broken from arch and span, flake by flake, the thirst shattering into a million squints and suns. And when the light, and what the light said to the child, the child passes on to the woman, and I to you, ready or not with spoon and stir, whatever ongoing, going on, whatever pushing, pushing, as through the nostrils of a god, the great syntax is rolling into place. Unbearable, the whiffs and blossoms, the jump ropes thumping pavement, no, I shall not take pity on you. I shall never have mercy on your sleep. Never be patient. I want to mix myself up with you into more, into one breath against the other. Two cries coming out of one mouth, or one mouth from two cries. And don't forget to forget forgetting, and the needlefish which leap toward fishermen's lights, which jump over boats and fall hysterical on the other side, flopping against the dark, pounding and pounding it, no ballast heavy enough. These are some poems that are coming out in one place or another. Uh, as you might have realized from the first poem I read, effort is something that interests me. And this poem is called Mysteries of Effort, and it's in four short sections. To effort, to forte, fortissimo, that fort in the word, refuge within the push, 
uphill shoulder to the wheel or shovel mouthing its mound of dirt, gibbering, grave, gravid, gravamen. How serious that hole in the ground. Jump in, it's yours, irresistible with gravitas and winter's invitations to be in absentia, supine, inert, be in the under, stupefied by its incense and arsenal of incendiary devices on the ready to blow you to renewal. Taste of earth and seeds and each root's dangle clutch of grubs to larva the future, to mud with bugs. Of what do I accuse my life that I scattered into each day's joys and scaldings, that I congregated with mess and mitts, neglected the heave-ho, let the gravity of each knot sink me deeper. If I dig into my name, my Susan, floating the surface of me, yet rooted in muck, I lotus her sarcophagus, I sushan on tomb walls, I lily Shoshana, I rose in Zusa, in ancient Rome, I am everywhere, Zuzana in Slovak, in Napoli, Susanna Colapana, abracciami forte, venere d'oro, venerated with long stares and songs, with hands groping crotch and butt. Is it time to detach, time to rest free from time, or time to root in the evanescent, be thick with what passes? Is it time to effort to let go of each smell, each rain trembles splash on what a face's face, efflux through rock and mountain, down to the source, that gash spilling upward, tasting of start and stutter, and each seed's whispering mutter, its momo, its baby talk. I had looked at the etymology of my name, Susan, and I found that it does go back to ancient Egypt. And what was written on a sarcophagus was SSN. Of course, it was a Semitic language that leaves out the vowels. So I'm guessing at Sushan. I like the sound of that. Um, this is a poem where, again, I'm mixing languages. I mean, one of my reasons for mixing languages, apart from the pleasure of all these languages and the excitement I get from it, it's we live in a globe. We live in a world. We're all mixed together. I grew up in New York City. I would hear so many different languages in just one day. So in a way, by bringing them in, 
I'm trying to create some sort of model for an ideal world rather than the end of the gods, although sometimes I think that's the way we're headed. So this has other languages as well as made-up language. To speak of love and forbid translation. Swish de la soie du soir because it's fun to say, because the words crinoline my mouth. Some of the coral are not coral, nor fleur-de-lis, nor bits of chalice easily broken in the incoming acrophony where huge upswells purple motion and the way mouth sucks in birthday with paper doilies, with claustra and claustrum, stalk, spicula, all of it swaying on its invisible stem. Oh, kitty, oh, black job. Such are the joys that étoile when the tides dentel. None of it fastens securely, bristle and barb and la parole, catching at candles and candelabra, the swung and streaming thrown open, long-fluted in-drinkings, and the onceness turning every fault and fracture, every plump of the current to flurry from fleur, under from undies, from this place, others keep breaking off, such as skydive to someone suddenly awake. This next poem is called Trawling. And I'd always been confused between trolling and trawling. This one's trolling, which means with a line, trawling would be with nets. So trolling, that song again, and the rain, how they scalp me open, all my electrics on end to say, I have nothing to say to the rain, throwing unisons against the windows. Hey, sometimes I get too excited to go on reading as if Forsythia had suddenly bloomed on the pages and I am ruptured into spring. I run up and down the stairs testing my heart. Nothing held back this time. No, there is nothing under us when you sing to me inside my head, trolling for sound effects. But why not start where the chords loosen up? where the sumptuous darks hoodwink intentions. When we read poems together, I rush each blow, raw, bowl, yank my head off its stem, why not? So that what I figment is a stairway for the ear alone, on which chromatic motions ascend and descend, floating ambiguous angels. Who knows how many minds we inhabit, prisoners of what micropolyphonic strands degraded or exalted above our level of wall, nail, foul. 
the way you just repeated the whispering off of what I thought you said. My breath is singed with it. This film is called Welcome. From not having entered language, neither the doing nor the not doing, it has stayed open and variable as sky. It has lubricity, also a thick tangle, ancient and overgrown, with its own laws and customs, its own cruelties and pleasures, the two perhaps necessary to each other. The example of a banyan is a fiction. I like walking around it, looking at it from all sides of its shadows and possibilities. What happened and when, if anything really happened, does not matter. With all the precision of a bird taking a seed from my hand and dreamily cracking it, I open what I was about to say, then let it drop back, still moist from my tongue. When I speak, there it is behind what I am saying, a place not meant to be entered, but only looked at like one of those architectural models where a hint of the inside is given, a door slightly open with its thread of light dangling over the threshold, something to be grasped, more of a swinging, urgent and painful, a swinging on which to swing. I mentioned a group of poems that I'm working on that have to do with wars because it seems like all my life, from the time I was a child, there's always been a war. So this group, the poems I'm reading from it, uh, three have to do with Iraq. But since I deal with other wars too, earlier ones, the fourth one goes all the way back to ancient Rome. This one is called Fallujah. It was after meetings when we talk, darkness descending on the parking lot. He said, for abundance and aftershock, or at least that's what it sounded like. A small D was shoulder launched, he said. I said, I kept a list of all the names. He was older than Patroclus, younger than Hector. When he loaded the ammo, his voice rearranged. He said, Xanax, restoral, nobody counted fingers and toes. Some of the names were Powell, Kosinski, Magoe, Pineda, Clark. I didn't know what to do with the smiles. He said, 
After a face is ripped away, you see hindsight and forethought pouring out. Later, he forgot what he said he'd done. Two men in a jeep kept blocking the view, palm fronds on fire, long-legged birds closing in. You need a thicker partition, he said. A child was watching when he shoved in the gun. The dogs go on, eating up history. The second one I'll read is called Bakuba. And I don't know how much you know uh, of Bakuba, but it had the most intense guerrilla fighting between Shiites and Sunnis in the Iraq war. And there was an American base there called Camp uh, Warhorse. And how much does this audience know about death metal? Anybody here into death metal? Um, because there are a lot of references to death metal. For those of you who don't know, they're, I guess you could say, rock group. Uh, there are lots of American death metal groups and lots of European, German, Scandinavian. And some of the names mentioned here are names of the group, so I'll tell you in advance. Abysmal Torment, Control Denied, Fractal Gates, Deicide, and then Deathlock comes in. Uh, it's a, both a virtual and real band. In uh, death metal, the voice growls. Uh, so it's a special kind of voice, and that comes into this. Bakuba. It might have been him, or some shuffler of the third degree. What with the smog in the bar, and smoke in the VID from the small exploding all noise in the awesome dive where he had enterprised another round for us. Yes, Steve, or Tom, or Mike, it looked like yours, the face in the blackberry pick, but younger, obviously. A nice guy is how I describe him to a friend Harmless, maybe, benign. The man on the stool beside mine appeared left out in the rain and twisting cocktail napkins into not whole figures, just legs he stood against my glass. Skull! On stage, a dismal, abysmal torment, or was it control denied? Two men behind us fogged my glass with no way it was him, bro, as they outgrowled the band on the prowl and provoke to pick a fight secondhand. At the fractal gates, would it be deicide or death clock? He said, Camp Warhorse, Diala. But when we clicked the link, a pop-up always cut in, Treasure Coast Lexus, 
beheading a nexus of tall grass and tank tracks in reddish mud, watchtowers at sunset with tremolo picking so disconnected from everything but sky, I felt a sudden urge to stand and survey the stars as they came on one by one. Clouds of light blown above dark figures in a plane, signaling or maybe not. In the clip, he had made a touchdown, big grin, just shouting and smoke where a house had been. And this one. This one is called Shock and Awe. This time it wasn't a bird. It was a woman in song they carried through the thick of it. This time it wasn't a bird at dusk, a poet's bird. It was a woman carried like a banner into a forest of smoke and big guns. Isn't there always someone running in the wrong direction, confused, mistaking left for whatever, for anything but right? Her song, like a saint measured out, a trophy blaring from the radio of a jeep behind a jeep, driver, sidekick, camera guy recording, but maybe not hearing the song as it swung its skirts and lanterns, as it cast the holy waters of its voice on all who tuned in that day to artillery and bombs. And the dust couldn't shroud, couldn't tent the song, or keep the lamps from shaking in the room where I kept watch. Should I hate myself for drinking scotch, for eating peanuts while people were dying? Oh, dance with me, n'importe qui. Is that what she sang in Baghdadi from inside a box? in her throat, where listeners came to lie down in a meadow, face to face, mouth sighing into mouth, the guns, the bombs in a trance of rage. And all the time I was writing this poem, I kept thinking, you can do it, Susan. You can play a flute, smoke a cigarette at the same time, smoke blowing from one nostril, song from the other. And crazy as it sounds, I believed if she could pedal her song faster, faster, the intricate calligraphies writing breath into dust, her song against the guns, that's what war was, is, a woman's song on one side, the guns neither here nor there. Was anyone else listening that day, longing to dance with that song, to wrap their mouths around it, breathe in wet grass, flowers opening as the picture was lost, the song for a moment outlasting picture before all sound 
went dead. And how many of you here have seen the column of Marcus Aurelius in Rome? A couple of people have. There's a column of Marcus Aurelius and a column of Trajan. And, I mean, you look up, you can't see what's on the top. But when I studied art history, I got a close look at everything that's carved. And it's all the wars that the different emperors had fought. And so this is col column of Marcus Aurelius. There are things we would have had in common. Pleasure in the slaver of dogs. Delight with those cracks in bread, deep fissures that allow aroma to escape. Marcus's word for wonderful. We're also chummy now in the USA. It's only natural I should address a dead Roman emperor by his first name. Marcus's word was mirabilis, though at times he must have said mirus. The meditations for which he is famous were written in Greek. As to whether he read the Phaedrus, I have no idea. So it's not to him I would say, I'm tired of the good horse and the charioteer's whip, thrashing the bad horse to a bloody pulp. Still, I think Marcus would have enjoyed the passage in Homer, where charioteers feed celery leaves to horses. Horses, he would have understood a lot better than Wallace Stevens with his noble rider. And though he would have resisted this good stoic that he was, he would have understood how horses and humans get mixed up with each other. That fusion where the groin of the rider melts into the back of the horse, good or bad, and he would not have been afraid to put his hand into a horse's mouth where the big teeth are. Perhaps as a boy, he tried out a whinny, even a snort. Who knows, before he got his education miraculous, he might have understood what it is like to be a horse pressed down by the weight of the human that special human spirit tugging at the reins, squeezing you with its powerful muscles. But no, it's not to him I say, I want spit and breath from the belly and a horse with a wild, mad look in its eyes, a bad horse that snorts and foams for pleasure, snuffling every ditch, distracted by smells ambrosial and foul, though there was probably a horse just like that in his stable, a crooked, devious horse, hell-bent on throwing its rider into the first fosse it could find. As to my desire for the bad horse, Marcus would have viewed it as, quote, a response to the puppet strings of impulse, end quote.
On his column, which you can gawk at next time you're in Rome, the wars tower up for hundreds of feet, barbarian women weeping as their villages burn, as husbands die at their feet, and they, their children, are led into slavery. Marcus is always composed in control. The artists made the heads large so you can see clearly every expression, despair, rage, pain, grief, humiliation. The slaves spiral upward into the rest of their lives. The Romans ride huge horses, viewed sometimes from the side, sometimes the rear. Marcus oversaw it all, even when he was not in the midst of action, appointing captains, lieutenants, generals. Compared to that, what's one impulsive rider with a broken neck and a horse trying to rid itself of the human? This last poem is dealing with something very, very different. It's called Gaze. And the only thing I have to tell you is the very last word in the poem is C, S-E-E. Because of some of the imagery that comes in, you might hear it or read it as S-E-A, which is fine, but C-S-E-E would be the first reading. And the only other thing, I don't know whether you know this or not, uh, pleroma is a theological term, and it means fullness, a fullness with nothing leaking out. As if an artery had been severed, milk squirting a nurse's face, a pitcher of ice water, I could taste it on my lips, time and a sweetness, and though some things change, yields on treasuries, styles of poems, her breast and the child's mouth could not get together, even as seeds of looking began to flower between them. And the big four, love, death, joy, pain, would be what they'd always been and go on, undaunted by statistics or what's scraped from the streets of Cairo, which is not so different from what's scraped from Boston streets or Kabul's. And she, so deep, foretaste and aftertaste into mothering what I thought I'd remember before the diagnosis is not what now engorged in extremis. Her breast, jumping about like a garden hose when you let go of it, her breast maddened by the buildup of milk and the baby's mouth slackening its honey and bee stings, the breast flopping out, and if their gazes were extracted, 
or the child not able to keep up with a breast, living a life of its own, thin, watery, sweet, into the low-lying fields and marshes, caught up with foremilk and hind milk, where the mother liked to wander without knowing for a while where she was, what edgelands, what lack of clarity, fog, haze, perhaps searching for a place where everything looks farther and deeper into itself, looking farther and deeper, the mouth and the breast gravitating the mine shaft of gaze all the way to that unseeable where chemical concentrations raise their yields. But who sees with eyes that place where giving makes more? the flow from the baby's mouth into a breast, a milk only babies can make, the mother's breasts enormous with it as she leaned back into pillows, no longer leaving the hospital bed, living on IV and Pepsi. How much more can she take of the child's depths of looking into where it begins, the milk with its skies and grasses from a different part of the universe, field on field, her eyes closed into baby, and baby all root, urgent, pushing into the breast as if it were dirt, babies and mother eyes making gooey sounds, even as the future fixes its mature Medusa gaze, staring hard, a vase of roses, a book no one reads anymore, the straw in the glass of Pepsi, and sleep with its wide open mouth. Who knows where she went in that sleep? rolling about the bottom with all the arcana of cancelled checks and argorial relics. Why not be scraped by winds until the body is no longer audible? Why not be worn like cathedral stones where everyone has been kneeling for centuries? Why not say, leave thee, over and over until all significance has gone and only the tsa and hung resound. Christ, the mother would use her own rib to paddle the child to safety, fashion a new mother for its fingers, which curled around her fingers, its eyes like suction cups attaching to hers whenever she surfaced, its smile fastening to her smile, which split open like a mango seed and put down roots into the not yet, but maybe. The stranger everything hears, the more accurate. When the nurse said, you hold the crying, it was not even two weeks old. Any breast would do. My own breast, mushy for it. There is a suction in suck. I don't hear in where the bee sucks. There suck I. 
The mouth is not a flower, and though it can be dreamy, it can be frantic, pulling for rain, the mother pushing up from the bottom or hurling herself against invisible screens and windows to be imprinted with everything that resists, with barriers, the hardness of what refused her, even in the dark seeing the huge circuitries of love shocking her on, the baby's gaze pulling her up, out of breath, bubbles blowing from her mouth, bruises on her throat from when they shoved a tube down too fast. If, in the end, she went to where everything junks itself, wings tarred shut, or to be pressed into shales and limestones with the trilobites, or be seepage in tunnels and mines. It was not with the ease of those who come to grief without hesitation. And if one day the baby, now a man, should search the newspapers, sold the day she died, just to see what else happened in the world. Twenty-two children poisoned from school lunches in India, a Taliban leader calling secular education satanic, a Syrian child found dead with its mouth stuck open in a scream. Better, perhaps, to know his gaze could not be pulled out of her eyes. It rooted even in the open mouth, fertilizing each man, each woman in the room, the gaze panting hard to raise from the depths how many minutes of mother, its molecule shooting sparks at us, such a consummation without touching, touching everything unioned. It grew like plantains from a bomb site, like chickweed and nettle, huge knots of stems and leaves to heal, to defy, such a pleroma of gaze, such fullness making full, nothing leaked out of the outlast, the gaze squirting its milks, its tussocks, it dribbled from her eyes, splashing us all with sea.